0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Hey, 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 welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I am your humble host, Heather Tesco. I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being much more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This episode is on Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, based on the new book by Tracy Borman Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, the mother and daughter who forever changed British history. I will put a link up at the show notes at englandcast.com slash Elizabeth Ann. That's englandcast.com slash Elizabeth Ann. And we're going to do this similarly to how I did the Woolsey episode a couple of weeks ago, because there's too much to do it in just one episode. I mean, I could, but then I would get hoarse and I would lose my voice and nobody wants that. So um, we're going to split it into two episodes. So this episode is going to talk about Anne her background, and the relationship that she had with Elizabeth, and go right up into the point where she was killed. And the next episode, we'll talk more about Elizabeth and her relationship to her mother, her mother's memory as an adult. Before we get started, though, you know what time it is. It's time to talk about TudorCon, because we are just, what, nine and a half months away from TudorCon 2023, and time flies. So we have some new speakers confirmed, including the most fabulous Adrian Dillard, who has a new book out that you should check out as well. So remember, you can go to englandcast.com slash tudorcon to grab your tickets. You can set up a payment plan there if you want to split the payment over several months to uh, to spread that out. You can learn all about it. It's September 8th through 10th in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It's on a beautiful winery, um, restored bank barn. It's now a winery next to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair. It is three days of fun and music and feasting and new friendships and learning and all of the Tudor goodness you can imagine with like a hundred of your new best friends. So englandcast.com slash tutor con. The one thing I will say, depending on when you're listening to this, if you're listening to this up until about December 20th or so, if you want to have a card of sorts to put under a tree, because the thing is, when you get your tickets, um, it's not actually a ticket, you just you get this confirmation that you bought your ticket, and then I have your name on a list, right? So there's nothing physical that exchanges hands. But if you want something physical to put under a tree or under whatever sort of holiday decoration you have at this time of year, um, if you let me know, I will write a card out and I will send it. So up until I'd say like the 20th for it to get to you. I, of course, can't control the United States Postal Service. That would be cool if I could, but I can't. So I will send it priority mail. And hopefully it will get to you. So if you do that by around the 20th or so, um, if you want to have this as a gift, perhaps send a note to the person who is supposed to be buying you gifts and let them know. And then (laughs) we'll have a little card there for you um, to have under the tree or in your stocking or wherever it is you put gifts at this time of year. That is my note on TudorCon. I hope to see you there. It's going to be so much fun. So, Anne and Elizabeth. One of the most famous items that Elizabeth kept with her for her entire life was a ring that had a portrait of both Elizabeth and Anne on the inside. It was something that Elizabeth always kept with her. It's evidence of just how close she was to the memory of her mother even though Princess Elizabeth hadn't even turned three years old when her mother was beheaded, so she likely didn't have any memories of her. But still, she revered the memory of her mother. And yet, contemporary accounts often refer to Elizabeth comparing herself to her father quite a lot. She based her style of queenship on how he reigned. She referred often to her dearest father. But she only referred to Anne a few times, She never tried to overturn the annulment of Henry and Anne's marriage. And interestingly, she never tried to have her mother's body reinterred. So this often leaves people with the impression that maybe Elizabeth wasn't as close to the memory of her mother as she was to her father. And she might have even been a little bit ashamed by her. Elizabeth was born, unfortunately, a daughter, unfortunately for Anne and Henry. But she would come to embody the first Elizabethan golden age. She was the culmination of everything from the Berlin line and from the Tudor line. It all manifested itself in Elizabeth the first. It was this golden age of everything from music to theater, exploration, the defeat of the Armada. Now, Anne's heritage wasn't quite as distinguished. She came from a family that did not have royal blood or even an aristocratic pedigree. The Boleyns were of Norman descent. They gradually grew to own properties through the wool trade. By the 15th century, they had grown in prominence and wealth. It was Geoffrey Boleyn, who lived from about 1380 to 1440, who began to really grow the family fortune. Before long, the family had purchased several properties. Geoffrey was lending money to Henry VI for the war in France, and then Richard III made Anne Boleyn's grandfather William a Knight of the Order of Bath when he was crowned in 1483. Then William, Anne's grandfather, married Margaret Butler, who was an heiress, and thus began the real rise to power. William made sure that his eldest son Thomas was educated as much as possible. He rose rapidly through the late 1490s. He was one of the guests when Arthur Tudor married Catherine of Aragon in 1501. Thomas Boleyn then married Elizabeth Howard, so he married into the noble Howard house, and so his three children all had noble blood. We've all heard about Anne's education at the court of Margaret of Austria. Margaret of Austria actually wrote to Thomas that, I find her so bright and pleasant for her young age that I am more beholden to you for sending her to me than you are to me. Anne was exposed to art And music that she never would have experienced in England. And she would have encountered writing by such radical women like Christine de Pizan. Christine de Pizan was famous for her book, The Book of the City of Ladies, which nowadays we look back at that and say it was one of the early feminist books because she believed that girls should be educated like boys. Radical. But, you know, it's a little tricky to put a modern concept like feminism on somebody from the 15th century. But either way, it was an exciting time for Anne to be introduced to all of these concepts, and the court was a bit of a finishing school for her. Of course, her sister Mary was also in France, but Mary's path veered in a little bit different direction than Anne's. She was supposedly the French king's mistress for a while, and then she went back to England to serve Catherine Veragon, and wound up the mistress of Henry VIII himself, possibly bearing him an, Ill- an illegitimate child or two depending on what stories you read and believe. So who knows, right? Anne was busy reading books, playing the lute. She spoke French expertly. She also loved having conversations, debating. She was witty. She didn't fit the mold of the quiet ladies at court. Anne began a deep friendship with Francis I's sister, Marguerite of Navarre, who was about 10 years older than Anne, but had a huge influence on her. Marguerite welcomed the radical religious ideas that were cutting across Europe and wanted to change the Catholic Church from within, believing that everyone should be able to read the Bible, the Word of God, in their own language, and not just the wealthy or the priests. Totally radical. One can only imagine how exciting this would have been for someone as precocious as Anne. In her later years, Anne's Bible was a French translation. She had a lot of reformist books and texts that were in French. So that stayed with her forever. Even when she was queen, decades later, she would write to Marguerite letters that had words of admiration and affection that none of her other letters have ever expressed. Anne left France in 1521 to marry into the Irish family, the butlers. But Anne soon found herself at the center of this orbit of other admirers, including Thomas Wyatt and Henry Percy. Anne joined her sister Mary in Catherine of Aragon's household. The first record of her at court is in a pageant a Cardinal Wolsey had organized for Henry VIII on Shrove Tuesday in 1522. Four years later, on another Shrove Tuesday in 1526, Henry VIII jousted in cloth of gold and silver with the slogan, Declare I Dare Not, and a man's heart in a press with flames around it embroidered on his outfit. He was already pining for Anne. Of course, Anne played her cards well, and Henry's passion just grew. Here's where Anne's belief in reform, her support of religious change, and her interest in reading and debating all came full circle. She was able to frame the argument over divorce in a way that made it look as if the Pope was the one who was the real tyrant. And by annulling his marriage to Catherine, overruling the Pope, Henry was rescuing his people from the tyranny of the papacy. Anne began to plead and petition Henry to release reformers and religious radicals who'd been imprisoned. She even had an illegal copy of the English Bible in her rooms, which she shared with her ladies. Henry moved heaven and earth to marry Anne and have her crowned queen while she was already five or six months pregnant. Of course, everyone was confident that the child would be a boy. The birth of a princess was humiliating and beyond disappointing. Think about it. Henry had bet everything on God favoring him with a boy. A boy would have justified, would have been the reward that he got, would have been proof that God supported all of the actions that he took, all of the fighting against the rest of the world, even. He had bet everything on it. And here was a girl. He supposedly tried to be calm. He told Anne that they were both young, and with God's grace, boys would follow. But it was also crushing to Anne. She'd made such a big deal out of promising a boy to the king. Maybe God wasn't as supportive of the marriage as they had all hoped. Anne, far from being in a position where she would be invincible as the mother of Henry's heir, which she had hoped that she would have that position, she was now no different than Henry's first wife, Catherine, the mother of a girl. Only now things were even worse for Anne because she didn't have the international support and the status, the royal blood that Catherine had. Within a few weeks, Henry brought his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, home from France, possibly as a reminder that he could actually father sons. Anne was in a position where she had few allies and not a lot of people who were going to fight for Elizabeth if they had to. Elizabeth did bring out Anne's maternal side, though. Everyone could tell the bond that existed between the two of them, and even after Anne was churched, she brought Elizabeth back to court with her rather than leaving her in the nursery, which was what was expected. Whereas a lot of people simply saw Elizabeth as the unfortunate daughter, Anne was clearly in love and besotted by her girl, and contemporaries write of her not letting Elizabeth out of her sight. People expected Anne to feel upset and guilty for not having produced a son, and yet here she was, proud of Elizabeth. Even so far as wanting to breastfeed Elizabeth herself, something which Henry had overruled. Elizabeth was soon set off to live at Hatfield. And while Anne couldn't stop the move as much as she might have wanted to, she did try to oversee everything. Elizabeth would have a wet nurse or people to rock her in her cradle and lots of other ladies around to bathe her and to help keep her occupied. Knowing that she didn't have a lot of people she could trust, Anne filled the household with her own family, ensuring that Elizabeth would be reminded regularly of her mother. One thing Elizabeth did have in common with Anne and might have begun early was a love of fashion and the use of clothing to portray royal status. Anne sent expensive gifts, including clothes and accessories, to Hatfield. One estimate is that she spent the equivalent of £18,000 a month on clothes and accessories, both for herself and for Elizabeth. As queen, Elizabeth would love fashion. At one point, the Venetian secretary to England guessed that Elizabeth owned over 6,000 gowns. When she died, the royal inventory did list 1,900. Less than 6,000, but still more than any other queen in English history. Anne also wanted Elizabeth to be raised as a reformer and to have similar humanist education as her own. She enlisted her chaplain, Matthew Parker, to go to Hatfield to give sermons, for example. Elizabeth would take after her mother in this way, speaking several languages and embracing the reformed religion. And of course, Matthew Parker would become the Archbishop of Canterbury. Anne worked tirelessly to arrange a marriage for Elizabeth with France, but that was not working out. Anne was furious at the rejection, but it did little to dampen her pride in her love for her girl. She spent as much time as possible with Elizabeth, she brought her to court for extended periods, and she left little reminders of her in Elizabeth's home. For example, she paid to have her emblem installed in the stained glass windows in the rooms where Elizabeth played. In April of 1536, as Anne's star was rapidly declining, Elizabeth came to the court at Greenwich. Anne spent a lot of time playing with her and dressing her up in the new outfits that she had ordered. But Anne seemed to have some sort of premonition during this month. And at the end of April, she asked Matthew Parker to look after Elizabeth's spiritual education if anything were to happen to her. A few days later, she heard of an important council meeting. She grabbed Elizabeth and rushed off to find the king and try to remind him of everything that they had shared together. While Anne was in the tower, she spent time thinking about what the future could hold. There's a letter that historians have debated for centuries that may have been written by Anne, protesting her innocence. Historians debate it because the handwriting is different than Anne's other letters and the tone doesn't sound like her. But I mean, she was in the tower, right? So maybe her handwriting would be different. I think mine might be different. And maybe I would write with a slightly different voice if I was panicked. So who knows, but either way, this letter wound up in the papers of Thomas Cromwell, was discovered several years later when he was arrested. When she was queen, Elizabeth would have copies of this letter made. She wanted to preserve the letter protesting Anne's innocence. While she was in the tower, Thomas Cranmer had the job of having Anne agree to an annulment of the marriage to Henry. This seemed like a bit much since Anne had already been sentenced to death but Henry wanted the way clear to marry Jane Seymour and wanted to make Elizabeth illegitimate so that any heirs from Jane would be higher up in the precedence. He also maybe wanted to make Henry Fitzroy his heir at this point as well. Either way, it seemed that Cramer dangled the possibility of banishment to a nunnery in front of Anne so that she agreed to the annulment, even though it would have made Elizabeth illegitimate. Why she did this is up for debate but she might have believed that an alive mother was better than no mother, whether Elizabeth was considered illegitimate or not. Of course, it wound up not mattering in the end. The punishment stayed death, and now Elizabeth was illegitimate on top of it all. Anne did Elizabeth one final service on the scaffold, though, when she spoke nothing but good of Henry. This was likely an attempt to soften his heart towards her and her daughter. Even though she was only queen for three years, Anne left a mark on English history, especially through the reformed religion and support of England pulling away from Rome. Elizabeth would also be left with the qualities that Anne had instilled in her, this humanist education, her her precociousness, wanting to have conversations and not just be quiet and sort of sink into the wall. But Elizabeth was able to learn from some of Anne's mistakes as well. After Anne was killed, Elizabeth's household was greatly reduced. Mary got some of her precedence back. Elizabeth seemed to realize that something was amiss, commenting on the way people had stopped calling her Lady Princess and now simply called her Lady Elizabeth. Jane Seymour helped to rehabilitate the relationship between Henry and his daughter Mary, but didn't spend a lot of energy at all helping Elizabeth to have a relationship with her father. Possibly this was because she shared a religion with Mary. She also might have been bothered by Elizabeth, who was this kind of constant reminder of Anne Boleyn, and maybe Jane felt a little bit of guilt about what happened with that. Who knows? But either way, Elizabeth sort of faded into the background during these years. Rumors actually began to circulate that maybe Henry wasn't even Elizabeth's father, since Anne had committed adultery with so many men who even knew who the father was. And this is one of the rare cases where Maury Povich would have been a welcome addition to Tudor England. (laughs) Anyway, the psychological effects that the death of her mother would have had on Elizabeth have been written about and debated for years. It's tempting to put up a modern diagnosis on a pre-modern person, but the truth is that she did suffer from anxiety, she was distressful, she was often emotionally unstable, She even had physical manifestations, things like fainting fits and stomach problems. So who knows if this came from her anxiety and it was just sort of manifesting itself in physical ways. Either way, she was aware from a very young age that life could be precarious and she clung to the most loyal friends and servants that she could find, sometimes even when they did not deserve her trust. And that's what we're going to talk about next time. So we're going to leave it there for this week. Hop on into the Tudor Learning Circle at tutorlearningcircle.com to discuss this and all other things Tutor. It is a social network just for Tudor history nerds. And grab your TudorCon tickets, EnglandCast.com slash TudorCon and plan your trip to commune with your fellow history Tudor history lovers in September 2023. Hey, happy everything. Happy Christmas. Happy whatever you celebrate. If you celebrate. Happy Yule. Happy Solstice. Happy Hanukkah happy all of it um and i will speak with you again in a
0: couple of weeks thanks for listening why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
1: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it.
0: It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag.